0: Stories of Communism Two: 20th Century Slavery. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism over the past century. This is Eric Seligman, your host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. If you've been following the news, you may be aware that the United Nations has recently passed some courageous resolutions affirming the radical idea that slavery is a bad thing. While we naturally agree with this, it's always frustrating that in such discussions, some of the largest mass enslavements in human history are ignored, those created under 20th century communism. The best documented of these is probably the gulag system of slave camps created by the Soviet Union, which reached its greatest heights in the 1940s and 50s, but lasted from only a few years after the Russian Revolution until the Soviet regime's eventual collapse. The most well-known chronicler of the gulag was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a fascinating historical figure. He started out as a mostly loyal communist citizen, serving as an officer in the Soviet army during World War II. But near the end of the war, in 1945, he was arrested for making comments critical of Joseph Stalin in a private letter, and condemned to the gulag labor camps. Millions died in those camps due to being forced to do excessive amounts of labor with inadequate food, clothing, and housing, but Solzhenitsyn miraculously survived, and during a brief thaw after Stalin's death was able to publish an autobiographical novel about life in the gulag, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, in 1962. The authorities soon clamped down and stopped him from publishing further works in this vein, but the worldwide fame created by this novel protected him to some degree from the communist authorities. After Ivan Denisovich, other gulag survivors from across the Soviet Union began contacting Solzhenitsyn and sharing their stories. Combining his story with those of many correspondents to piece together a complete picture of the gulag system, Solzhenitsyn created a massive documentary work, The Gulag Archipelago. He managed to smuggle it out to the West and get it published in 1973, though it would not see official publication in his own country until 1989. That's not surprising. Far from merely a report of isolated abuses, it was a comprehensive analysis of how the gulag was an integral component and result of the communist system. It's a fascinating read, by the way. At first, I was skeptical that a 2,000-page book on Soviet slave labor camps could hold my attention, but once I started reading, I literally couldn't put it down. By the way, today's quotes are from the Thomas Whitney translation. Although they may mostly have not been bought and sold explicitly, though in some cases they were, it's hard to argue against applying the word slavery to the gulag inmates. Here's some of Solzhenitsyn's description of his camp after arriving.
1: In all the rooms where multiple bunks were installed, two stories of four wooden panels and two cross-shaped supports placed at the head and feet. When one slipper stirred, three others rocked. They did not issue mattresses in this camp, nor sacks to staff with straw. The words bed linen were unknown. No sheets or pillowcases existed here and they did not issue or launder underwear. You had what you wore, and you had to look after it yourself. In the evening, when you lay down on the naked panel, you could take off your shoes, but take into consideration that your shoes will be swiped.
0: Later Solzhenitsyn describes the work he was assigned, digging in the clay pits after his failure as a work foreman to successfully drive his brigade to achieve desired targets.
1: The work norm there was well known. During one shift, one worker was to dig, load up, and deliver to the windlass six cars full of clay, eight cubic yards. For two persons, the norm was 16th. In dry weather, the two of us together could manage six and a half. But an autumn drizzle began. For one day, two, three, without wind, it kept on. It was not torrential, so no one was going to take the responsibility for halting the outdoor work. Boris was weaker than I. He could hardly wield his spade, which the sticky clade made heavier and heavier. And he could hardly throw each shovelful up to the edge of the truck. We loaded as much as we could. Penalty ration? So it would be a penalty ration. The hell with you! Three times a day, the same black, unsalted infusion of nettle leaves. And once a day, a ladle of thin gruel, a third of a liter. And the bread, they gave us fifteen and a quarter ounces in the morning. And I would a crumb more during the day or in the evening. And then we were lined up for raw coal out in the rain. And once again, we slept on bare bunks, in wet clothes, muddled with clay, and we shivered because they weren't here in the barracks. Borea was coughing. There was still a fragment of German tank shell in his lungs. He was thick and yellow. I looked at him closely and was not sure, would he make it through a winter in camp?
0: Now, I expect some of you will be arguing that all countries make prisoners do labor to some degree. But we can't forget that these were people who haven't committed anything we would consider a crime. Even mildly questioning the government in a private conversation or letter, reported by an informer or spotted by a censor, could get you sent to these camps. That's aside from the mass deportations of regions and ethnic groups thought to be possible threats to the authorities. In the last episode, we saw how large classes of innocent victims were sent away just due to their neighbor's jealousy. In such systems, nobody can dare to publicly discuss these conditions or advocate for their improvement unless they're ready to join the ranks of the enslaved. One might also argue that there were labor camps for prisoners already under the czars, so the gulag was not a major change. But as Solzhenitsyn points out, those czarist labor camps were not designed as death camps. For example, at a mining camp where the czar's work requirement was 118 pounds per day, gulag slaves were given a norm of over 20 times as much and sentenced to reduce punishment rations if they failed to deliver. Millions died in the Gulag camps from overwork, malnutrition, and other aspects of the poor conditions. Nothing remotely close to that could be said of the previous prison camps. He also points out that when nineteenth century writer Fyodor Dostoevsky famously described the bleak life at a labor camp in his book The House of the Dead, Tsarist censors were worried that due to its depiction of prisoners who had clean clothes, limited work days, and spare recreational time, They might reduce the value of labor camps as a deterrent to crime. While life in a Russian labor camp could never be said to be pleasant, the brutal slave camps that killed millions of prisoners only arose under communism. As is typical, wherever there's slavery, any remotely attractive female prisoners of the gulag were essentially forced into prostitution. They were destined to serve whichever of the trustees or special prisoner supervisors favored by the guards they were allocated to, as soon as they arrived in camp.
1: In the camp bath, the naked women were examined like merchandise. Whether there was water in the bath or not, the inspection for lice, the shaving of armpits, and pubic hair gave the barbers, by no means the lowest ranking aristocrats in the camp, the opportunity to look over the new woman. And immediately after that, they would be inspected by the other trustees. The archipelago hardened, and the procedure became more brazen. And then the trustees decided among themselves who got whom. And what if it if you love someone out in freedom and wanted to remain true to him? What profits there in the fidelity of a
0: female corpse? Because communism superseded all previous systems of morality, it was easy for officials to rationalize arbitrarily cruel treatment. Anyone who dared to stand in the way of their perfect new system of government deserved whatever they got. Why not get some use out of them, forcing as much labor as they could before the prisoner's inevitable death? Solzhenitsyn and his fellow prisoners certainly considered themselves to be slaves. On one occasion, a gulag construction brigade found themselves transporting a large number of handcuffs, which the guards had forgotten to count, and decided to preserve a lasting record of their condition.
1: Out of 125 pairs of handcuffs, our lad's carry off 23. There, in the work zone, they started by smashing the cuffs with stones and hammers. But soon they had a brighter idea, wrapping them in grease paper so that they would last better and breaking them up in the walls and foundations of the buildings on which they were working that day. Together with ideologically uninhibited covering notes, descendants, these houses were built by
0: Soviet slaves. Here you see the sort of handcuffs they wore. As you would expect in this short podcast, we're really just touching on a tiny sampling of the many details included in thousands of pages of the Gulag Archipelago. But an inescapable conclusion is that the tens of millions of prisoners condemned to labor camps for so-called political crimes and sentenced to decades of forced labor in unbelievably substandard conditions should be considered slaves in any meaningful sense of the term. While the Soviet Union may be gone, existing governments such as China and North Korea maintain networks of gulag-inspired camps to this day. And now we have the segment of the podcast where my co-host Manuel steps out from behind the quotes he's been reading and comments a little on today's topic. Um, So what do you think after reading all this?
1: Eric, I don't really have a comment. I have a question for you. Are the gulags still active today?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, the Soviet gulags were officially closed when the uh, Soviet Union, of course, uh, collapsed. But uh, there's a former KGB agent in charge of Russia right now, so can we really be sure? But uh, aside from that, you know, we have openly communist countries that still exist. We have China, we have North Korea. Um, both of them developed systems of labor camps based on what the Soviet Union did. So I think we can definitely say, yes, the gulags and this form of slavery do exist all over the world today. You know, and a lot of our uh, United States political leaders who are quick to harp on things that the United States did 150 years ago with regard to slavery, are curiously silent about the modern-day slavery that's still occurring all over the world. So next time you are discussing the moral calamity of slavery, don't just dwell on events of the 1800s and earlier. Think a bit about what has happened and is still happening in socialist and communist regimes throughout the world. This concludes your story of communism for today.